Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and we are going to continue some conversation today about the 10 words or 10 commandments. And this is basically going to be the third installment or third leg of kind of our introduction, introductory conversations and discussions about this subject matter and material. And so joining me for this discussion today, once again, are Terry and Rachel. So hello, Rachel. How are you today? Hey, I'm really good. It's good to be with y'all today. Yes. And hello, Terry. How are you? Good morning, Warren and Rachel. I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Good. So the three of us were kind of, so we're recording this on Monday, and the three of us probably had the most active sort of leadership roles in the conversations for yesterday, at least. Terry taught the adult class, uh, Rachel taught the youth class, and then I preached, and we'll have different voices kind of doing some of the different classes and things as we go through this series, because we do want to get different perspectives and have different points of view and different angles as we go through. So that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to is just different people having a chance to, to have uh, different roles in some of the teachings, uh, specifically in, in kind of the adult class is what I'm thinking about, I guess, there. But uh, I'm almost thinking of this as sort of the cutting room floor episode that we, we, we got some conversation. We, we got a lot of introductory stuff kind of out and, and into, into hopefully people's heads or at least out there communicated in some way or form in even in some emails maybe that went out beforehand, the sermon from this past Sunday, the, the adult class, the, the youth class. And so one of the things that I kind of want to start with, and we, we may get to some conversation about some of that material as well even, but I want to start with kind of, so what did we not get to yesterday that we feel like is, is good to, to at least talk about or, or throw out at the beginning of this series. Because part of my goal is, as we kind of go forward from here, that we will really kind of focus on the individual words or commands for each of the following weeks and won't have to do a lot of kind of rehashing of kind of setup and introductory stuff. So we'll have this podcast and the sermon and the class to, to kind of point people back to if, if they want any of the introductory materials. And, and so one of the things that, that was interesting to me that I never really kind of found a good place to plug into anything personally was this idea of, of kind of the creation imagery and language that's present in, in the Ten Words, in the Ten Commandments. And so I was kind of turned on to this by a couple of different writers have written about this or kind of pointed this out, that if you look in Genesis 1 the phrase God spoke shows up 10 times in the, in the creation narrative. And then if you look at Exodus 20, there are 10 words. There are 10 sort of instances of God speaking a, a word or a command to, to the Israelite people. And one, one of the quotes that I found on this that I found helpful and interesting is a quote by John, uh, Joseph Ratzinger. Joseph Ratzinger went on to become Pope Benedict XVI, uh, interestingly enough. And so uh, when he was John Ratzinger, he wrote, he wrote about the connection between the creation narrative and the Ten Commandments. And, and so he said this, kind of talking about this connection between the, the ten references of, of God speaking in Genesis 1 and the ten words in Exodus 20. He said, in this way, the creation narrative anticipates the Ten Commandments. This makes us realize that these Ten Commandments are, as it were, 
an echo of the creation. For they are not arbitrary inventions for the purpose of erecting barriers to to human freedom, but signs pointing to the spirit, the language, and the meaning of creation. And and I just, I really, I've found myself appreciating and, and sort of liking that way of thinking about the Ten Commandments, about these ten words, because I know that's a conversation that we've been having leading up to the series, and it may be something we can have a little more of today as well, just kind of, what do these mean to us? Why do they matter? Um, questions like that. And, and I, I, I really liked that framing of these as something that envisions and, and imagines this kind of new creation and something that reminds us and reminded the Israelite people of, of the nature of God, the character of God, and what God is hoping to create in the world with and through us as, as people and as a community of faith. And I think obviously that new creation then language certainly comes up more directly in the New Testament with this idea that, you know, in Christ we are a new creation, we are, we are made new. And so I wanted to kind of start there this morning or within our, within our podcast conversation for today and see if y'all had any thoughts on that. Does that stand out to y'all in any way? Does that connect with you or kind of what do you, what do you think about that connection between the creation narrative and the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments? Um, I do have a few thoughts on that, Warren. As you were speaking, I hadn't thought about this, but in the creation account in Genesis, God is creating the environment in which both he and man will dwell, uh, in that they are going to have a space where the two of them will share this space. You see in Genesis where, you know, it says that, you know, the voice of God was walking in the cool of the evening and you know, looking for Adam and when Adam sinned. But you have man and God dwelling in this environment where they can share this space. And then on Sinai, you have this covenant being formed and the tab- you know, information for the tabernacle is going to be given. And essentially, God is going to literally dwell among his people again. He is going to be with them. God literally went with them. So you had the, you know, uh, pillar of fire at night, the cloud during the day. You had God's presence, the entire encampment, all of Israel encamped around the tabernacle. And so God was the core, the center of that dwelling place. And so here you have in Exodus creation language of we are building an environment in which God will dwell with man once again. And then ultimately you have almost that paradise lost in Genesis and now paradise rediscovered or refound where God has said, I'm going to bring you to a new place where in that flows with milk and honey. And so here you have both the land itself is, is, is a beautiful paradise, but also the more important thing is God in relationship with man in this very close, intimate proximity in creating that space in which man and God will both uh, coexist and co-dwell. Although in the Exodus, because sin is still a problem, there is still some division, some barrier, and it takes the coming of Christ to remove that barrier, those final barriers of the place that only, in order to get the closest to God, only certain people are allowed to get the very closest to God. But even in Exodus, all people were in community with God, but that barrier because of sin was still in place until Jesus comes. 
Mm. That's so good. I'm really glad that you started with that, Warren, because that was something that came up in the reading beforehand that I didn't get to hash out in class either. And I think that there's this overarching concept. I would say it's a mega theme in scripture of the fellowship of God with man. So it starts in Genesis in the garden, God creating and being in relationship, even tangibly with humanity. And the story continues of God reaching out to people and showing that he he wants to be present with them. Um, And so even what the Israelites have just gone through before they receive the Decalogue is God leading them by a pillar of fire and a cloud. And so they have seen his presence with them. And I think this theme plays out even to the very end of scripture. In Revelation, the line is, Behold, the home of God is with man. And this theme just shows that God reaches out to humankind over and over and over because he desires them to know him and for him to have intimate fellowship with them. And I think that the creation, this shows the heart of God in creation, that he created us to be in relationship with him. So I think that Genesis shows us God creating in the beginning, and then the Decalogue or the Ten Words shows us God creating this people for himself and a people that would ultimately reveal God to all the peoples of the world. Yeah. And I like that way of thinking about it, um, as, as a way for us to come to know God better. Um, cause I do think it's, you know, as that quote from, uh, Ratzinger stated that, you know, these aren't just, I think he says for the purpose of erecting barriers to human freedom. Um, uh, but instead, point to the spirit, the language, the meaning of creation. And I think we could also say that they point to the spirit, the language, and and the um the the character, maybe not the meaning of God, but the character of God. That they they point us towards these are the things that are at the heart of of who God is and and what God is about. And so as we are to exist in relationship with him and and in turn relationship with others, these are things these are things you need to be aware of and you need to be purposefully pursuing. And, and that's kind of what I tried to touch on in the sermon yesterday is that I think the, the spirit of all of that is still true for us and that these are, these are still concepts that, um, that are important for us to be pursuing and, and are still important to this idea of how we go about loving God and, and loving others. Um, following that same thought, Warren, I, I see something additional being injected into the Exodus uh, story that's not in the Genesis story. In the Genesis story, you have Adam and Eve both there, and they are not so much emissaries or priests to the other people. Uh, you know, they have it's just their relationship with God. And then in Exodus, you see that this people group that is being formed to be in relationship with God has another very expressed purpose. Uh, In Exodus chapter 9, before the Decalogue, you have God telling Moses that this is what I want you to tell the people. You're going to be in covenant with me so that among all of the other people, you will be blessed because you will be my treasured possession. But here is your role. 
you will be a kingdom of priests and you will be formed into a holy nation. So you are going to be that light on the hill. You are going to be the go-between between me and the other nations. That's what a priest does, is they form that connection between God and man so that on man's behalf, the priests can go to God because the presumption is that they have a closer relationship or closer knowledge, more intimate knowledge of who God is. And so this is going to be the role of Israel as this light on the hill, this blessing to other nations that, that you know, that role was not there for Adam and Eve, uh, but it will be for Israel, God's new firstborn Israel. It makes me think of uh, another aspect that this covenant or the these ten words that God gives is God speaking to his son Israel. So there's this relational and familial connection um, that like he spoke to Adam, that was <laughs> it was Adam like a son to God. It was his creation and then Israel is this new creation, this people for God. And I, I think that that family language was helpful, that this is like a loving father speaking to his children communally and telling them, this is how you're going to succeed in relationship with me and with one another. Yeah, and following that, Rachel, exactly right on. Uh, Warren, I think in your sermon, you, you touched on the fact that even though God is speaking this to the entire community, the language is an individual language. You shall not. And I've read that that really relates to what Rachel was just saying, that he, God views Israel, the, the nation of Israel, as his son. And you see that exact language when God tells Pharaoh, you know, that because you have done this to my son, I will do this to your son. Uh, Israel is my firstborn, and because you have harmed my firstborn, I will harm your firstborn. And so, you know, the 10th plague, literally, Pharaoh's firstborn son dies, and you lose the firstborn son of all of the Egyptian families. Again, that very personal language of Israel is my firstborn son. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that ends up drawing a line between all of that all the way to Jesus, I think, because... Um, you know, and there, there's a whole, there's a whole other conversation that I think we've, we've had it in, in sort of maybe small parts in this podcast in the past about kind of that idea of what does it mean and look like for Jesus to be a, an atonement or a substitute, um, uh, for, for people, for Israel, whatever. And that's where I think it, it kind of plays in is that God creates this covenantal language all throughout the Old Testament with Israel, with his son, with his offspring, with his chosen people, and they are never able to fully hold up their end of the covenant. Um, that, that it, 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 their people, they're flawed, they sin, and they continue sinning. And so Jesus comes along as the one who kind of comes in and fulfills what Israel as the son is never able, fully able to do. Um, and, and I think you, you know, you see that throughout his life, obviously, and then in his ultimately in, in the giving of his life as well. And so I think it's another example too, of how to me, every, everything in the old Testament is, is, is kind of this, this river and stream of, of narratives and laws and everything else that is ultimately leading towards 
towards Jesus and his arrival and ultimately his, his death and resurrection. So Jesus is basically the fulfillment of the son. He is the son role, the son that Israel was supposed to be but couldn't be. Jesus, right. Jesus fulfills completes that. that. He's the son of God, the perfect son of God, who carries out the covenantal responsibilities that the people of Israel weren't able to uphold. Yes. Rachel said it better than I did. Uh, no. <laughs> you said it well, too. I'm getting I, my ideas from you. So. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. You summed it, you summed it up well in my kind of rambling attempt at it as, we, as I was pulling that from, from kind of what Terry was saying, because I do think that thread is certainly there. And, and I also think, you know, I want to kind of go into also what makes the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments distinct from the rest of the law. Because I personally, I do think there's a distinction. I think there's a few, and I kind of got into one of those in the sermon, that these are the, this is the only part that's communicated to everyone, and then Moses gets the rest of the law and has to come um, give it to the, the rest of the Israelite people. But I do personally see kind of a, a difference. And, and I think, you know, we could have conversations about, because I agree that we're not under, you know, all the old law. And, and we, are, we are not bound by kind of the Mosaic law at this point as those who are under Christ and under the new covenant and all of those things. And so I think there could be a question then of, okay, so if you're saying we're not under all the old law, what, what makes these 10 words, these 10 commandments something worth studying and following and, and adhering to. And, and like I said, I think we've tried to kind of start answering those in, in some kind of broad ways that I think will get fleshed out over the course of the series. But I, I also think, you know, and I think at, at one point, Terry, I think this is a question you kind of asked um, in kind of some of our conversations leading up to this series. Like, if you're struggling with it, then then like what which of the 10 words, which of the 10 commandments are you protesting that we follow? <laughs> like, and I think that gets to kind of flesh it out a little bit that, that I think once you start looking at it, I think we would all agree that these are good things for us to be adhering to still. And we may have different interpretations of, of what it looks like in a modern context. Um, but I, I, I think we would agree that there's, there's value and wisdom in these 10 words. And, and so if you've got a thought on that, either of you can share that, but I also want to kind of move into, so, okay, so if these 10 are sort of distinctive from the rest of the law, why? What makes them dis- distinctive? What makes these set apart in some way from, from the rest of the Mosaic law that will follow? I feel like the, these 10 are the foundation that everything else builds off of. And the other laws are the fleshing out and the details of what these look like in very specific sometimes scenarios. So, you know, it talks about um, caring for your neighbor and like leaving grain for people. And I think that these are examples of, you know, like not stealing, like we owe something to the poor. If you have enough, there's something that you um, owe to them. And so that's a form of not stealing. Um, and I think that all the other laws are just like, okay, like, let me help you understand what these look like in these specific situations. And then there's also some developments that come along with the tabernacle and what does worship look like. And so God has told them, don't have idols, don't worship anything other than me. 
And here are specific ways in which the worship of me functions appropriately and the ways that it glorifies me. It's really interesting because he does command them to make like cherubim and physical images (laughs) as features in the tabernacle, but those are not the things to be worshipped but they have a function and a role in worship. And so I think the rest of the law is fleshing it out and help, helping the Israelites to have more understanding as they continue to, to know what their identity is as the people of God. Yeah, and this is all framed around covenant relationships and covenant language. And, and God, even before he gives the 10 words, frames it to Moses as, if you keep my covenant... Um, and so think about it, you know, in our modern day sense, probably a marriage covenant is probably the closest we can come to where we use that language of covenant. You know, when we say our marriage vows, that is a foundational piece of how we agree to relate to one another and live with one another. But that's not detailed. That doesn't get into what happens on a day-to-day basis of how you conduct life and live life. And then when you have children that are entering that, uh, you know, what does that look like to be a family, to be community? How does that all fit together? How do you deal with relatives and in-laws and day-to-day? Who's going to work? You know, are both people going to work? Who's staying home? Who's taking care of the kids? Who's responsible? And it takes a lot of fleshing out, as you said, Rachel, to know what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. And then, of course, you take one family and multiply that times thousands of families. And now, so what structure do we need? So again, I see the Ten Commandments is really that core piece of the covenant language. And then, as you said, Rachel, the rest of that Mosaic law is really, it's, it's almost, you know, in a in our in our country it's almost like here you have the constitution and then you have all the federal law or state law and even you know and even the constitution is probably too broad because that has a lot of kind of nitpicking details about how government's set up whereas again i think marriage is probably the better example that we can relate to of marriage vows and then all of a sudden the day-to-day inner workings of what it takes to be a cohesive family that can live in community with itself and flourish and thrive and love. As one of the, the authors of one of these kind of books that I've had for the series, Peter Lightheart says um, he connects the 10 words to, you know, 10 hands on our fingers and kind of talks about that. And, and so he says the 10 words are a two-handed summation of the Torah. And so I think that that connects to, to what both of y'all are saying as, as well. And so what do we think about, what about the tablets? So these are, these are words, these are commands that are written on tablets of stone. Do you think those play into the kind of distinctive nature of these specific words or commands? Or what, what significance do the tablets have to all of this? I'll throw something out. Uh, you know, probably like most of us, I have this vision of, what they look like, you know, they have the rounded top and it's the typical, I think if we were to draw, draw your 10 commandments on tablets, a lot of us are very much affected by imagery growing up and what artists and artist renditions. I have no idea if that's anything like what they look like. Uh, but in my mind, 
it, it probably is most conducive with the way I understand this is I, I actually visualize them as actually each tablet has all 10 words on it and that it's literally the two sides, the two copies of the covenant to the people with uh, Israel having a copy and God having a copy and then God saying, you know what, because I'm going to live with you, you keep both copies. You keep my copy and your copy. We're going to put them in the ark. And then you have, it says that there's a side pocket on the ark that, you know, all of the, the book of Moses was put in. So you have all the other laws that Moses has written down, uh, placed in some other area. But inside the ark itself were these two tablets, the again, the covenant language, the vows between God and people and and people with one another. Again, the peoples made a vow with one another too, saying we will live this way. And not only, you know, can we break covenant with you, God, but we can break covenant with one another because, you know, when you look at that language, uh, I can I can break the covenant just by the way I treat other people too that are supposed to be in community with me. So again, I see it, and I have no way to know that this is accurate. It it may not be. It probably isn't. <laughs> but, it's okay, that's uh, what podcasts are for. We're throwing yeah, stuff out. Yeah, but I view it as here's your copy, here's my copy, and it's all the rules, you know, of what I need to know that, hey, this is what I signed up for. If you don't, if you forgot, go back. You remember that was, here was your side of the agreement. I just happened to give you both copies because I trust you and I'm going to live with you anyway. So we're both together at this point. You have my copy and you have your own copy as well. That's interesting. I think with the tablets, I wonder what symbolism comes to us from the fact that they were broken and remade. And that God himself wrote the words with his finger. Um, I think that the, the breaking and the remaking is this foreshadowing of the entire story of the history of Israel. That they will continue to break the covenant, to break the commandments. And God will continue to remake them, to remake them to remake the people of Israel into his people, into the covenantal people um, until Jesus comes and and fulfills it finally. And I think that he's still remaking us into his covenant people even today. And yeah, I, I didn't really ever realize how much difference of opinion there was just on the the makeup What's of the two them? tablets. Yeah. Is it, is it two copies of the same thing as, as Terry said? Is it divided up five and five? Is it divided up four and six, three and seven? Different people have different ways of dividing them up and saying, well, one tablet was the ones that are kind of focused on God and the other ones are kind of focused on neighbor. But even then you get into disagreements of, well, which, where do you stop then? Are the first three, four or five focused on God? Um, and all kinds of different um, different thoughts around just that, which in the end, I don't think it's, it's interesting to talk about. I think it's good conversation. But to me, I think the relevance of it is just how much difference of thought there are around these 10 words in general, um, not only related to what, what kind of our connection to them is, but, but there's just, there's so much that we don't know and so much that we're kind of left to interpret and, and read along. 
Um, but the other piece, that piece of kind of the placement of them within the arc was something that in, in my kind of reading and leading up to the series stood out to me what that, that you mentioned, Terry, as kind of even in even in their context, these these were these were words that were that were seen as sort of um, distinctive from the rest. And I think that may be the most tangible expression of that is as you look at they were placed in the ark. Um, they were most central to kind of the connection with God, the relationship with God, and experiencing the presence of God. And and I think if you're looking for a tangible kind of piece of what we've been talking about, this idea that they, they are a summation of everything else that follows and the rest of it is a fleshing out, I think to me that's a very literal, tangible example of that, that they are, are given primary placement within the structure of the Israelite community, within the tabernacle itself. They are placed at the center, and the, the rest of the law is outside of that. Um, and so I, I like that imagery kind of accompanying this conversation of, of why, why these 10 words, why, is the, why these 10 commands are, are, a sum, are a summation, are distinct, whatever language you want to put around that. I wonder if it has to do with that God wrote them with his finger. Like, I feel like it just gives it that extra significance of like, this is something that God touched. <laughs> yeah. How weird would that be to be walking around with these stone tablets that God wrote on? Um, yeah. Yeah. And following up what you just said, Rachel, and what Warren was leading up to is this whole concept of it's 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 predicted in Jeremiah and then uh, in Hebrews, the author goes back to this and quotes from it, is saying that, that that old covenant that was written on tablets of stone was not adequate to change people's hearts, that God has to, with his finger, write his words on our on hearts. hearts. And, and so again, it's, uh, yes, it for, helped form community and it was what they were able to perceive and uh, engage with then, but ultimately it didn't change the behaviors of the people. Um, and so here you have this new covenant that is being promised in Jeremiah, and then Hebrew is saying, and in the book of Hebrews, saying was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. That now that covenant with God is not written on stone tablets; it's written on the human heart. Uh, and hopefully, our human hearts are not still like stones where it actually can penetrate uh, and actually have the effect that it should. Yeah, God says, no longer will you have a heart of stone, I will give you a heart of flesh. And so the idea is that this has been a teacher and a trainer to to teach us God's way, but then to soften our hearts to actually love it <laughs> and to love God. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and when Jesus is being basically quizzed by, you know, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees saying, well, you're saying this about marriage, but why did Moses say this uh, in, in context of divorce? You know, Jesus is, is his statement was because your hearts were so hard, you know, then you were not capable. Your heart was not soft enough to actually have this written on your heart. It was too hard so almost as symbolic 
I just wrote it on stone because that's what your heart was like anyway. So I'm writing this in stone, chiseling it in stone. But ultimately, through the sacrifice of Christ, things have been softened. That barrier's broken down, um, and now it's written on fleshy hearts. That's beautiful. That's, yeah, that's interesting imagery and kind of, a, I think, maybe a shift in how I've traditionally... Because I think we traditionally think of the tablets of stone as... You're writing like because when we say things like you're writing it in stone, it's like it's this is forever, this is binding, this is here to stay. But if you connect that to the hardness of people's hearts, that's an interesting almost turning of that idea. Um, and and does yeah, that makes me think about it a little bit differently. So, yeah, I for, mean, thanks for yeah. helping to bring that out. Well, uh, in a tablet of stone, you know, we often will say, well, it's not written in stone, you know. <laughs> Um, and that's really what you want in a dynamic, fluid relationship. You just want that relationship guided by love. You don't want it rid- guided by rigid rules that are not transmutable, that can't be changed over time based on what a loving relationship should look like. You know, we, we make, we yeah, make, I like that. Yeah, we make promises to one another, but... You know, when is it actually more loving? Is it more loving to go back and say, I know we promised to do this back then, but it really makes no sense in the context of our lives today. So what's the more loving thing to do? To be true to something that was, quote, written in paper or written on stone then, or really just let our love for one another guide that? That's good. I like that because it made me think that, you know, Ashley and I have had several conversations about how we are both in many ways, very different people than when we got married. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, I think we have, uh, we have grown together and we have helped each other grow and, and mature and develop into different people than we were when we got married. But some of it is just you just kind of, you know, you, we're not the same people we were when we were in our young 20s and got married. And, and so, yeah, what, what do vows mean at that point? And, and just kind of as a superficial kind of example of that, I, I used to, we used to talk about how when, when we got married, Ashley was like this steak-loving, sports-watching person that, uh, you know, that's what we ate a lot of meat and steak together, watched sports, and then got into married life. And then she was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I like eating animals anymore. And, um, and it was like... <laughs> And yeah, sporting events are fine to go to in person, but she kind of got tired of watching them on TV. So I was like, well, this, like, what are, what, what are we doing? Uh, we, this isn't the person I married. <laughs> um, and, and so you do have to, I said that jokingly, you know, but, uh, but you have to like, if, if it's rooted in love um, and, and rooted in kind of a, a shared understanding of we're figuring out life together based on these vows that we made, then, then you figure those out together as a, as a couple as you go along. Or you could say, well, this isn't the person I married, so, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not as invested in this relationship as, as I was previously or, or whatever it may be. And now Ashley eats bacon cheeseburgers and all kinds of things again. <laughs> so she, that was just a phase, and we made it through that rough patch, and, and we made it out of it. But <laughs> Yeah, and the other thing about rules is rules create loopholes. You know, you see that. Do, you see that in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, do not kill. Well, I didn't murder anybody, but Jesus takes that further. He goes, no, that's not the spirit of what that's trying to get to. And so if I literally say, I am following all the rules, and yet I am being a total jerk in this situation, 
and I'm not doing the loving thing, but I'm following all the rules. Yeah, I got right the. Now. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm following the rules. Yeah, I didn't kill anybody. I, I beat a few people up verbally and physically, but I didn't kill anybody. So everything's cool, right? <laughs> yeah. Warren, I think that your your metaphor there is really interesting and helpful. And something that it brings out is the contrast between human marriage and this covenant that God is making with people. Because in this covenant, one of the parties does not change. One of the parties remains 100% faithful. So none of us have 100% kept up our marriage vows or any other promise or, you know, that we've ever made. But one of the parties in these covenants, 100% always keeps it, is always faithful, is unchanging. So that's basically the approach that we took in youth was talking about covenant. And I wanted them to have an understanding of the placement of the Ten Commandments within the biblical story. And so what has happened so far? So we started with God and creation, And then talked about the covenants that God has made with people up to this point. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant. And what do these promises mean? And and then the passage that we looked at in particular was Exodus 3, the burning bush, and God revealing himself to Moses. And Moses saying, who should I say sent me? God saying, I am. And so I told them that this phrase can grammatically be translated in all three major tenses. I was who I was, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. And I just saw their brains just go like, whoa, you know? And so then we had this discussion of, was that intentional? Is that a coincidence? And what does this mean, this name of God, I am, What does it mean? What does it convey about the character and the person of God? And so we talked about God's consistency, his covenantal faithfulness, and the way that he reaches out to humanity in relationship, because he also identifies himself as the God of particular people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, And so I wanted them to understand that context of how God has revealed himself to people um, before the giving of, of these laws and that the people are entering into this covenant with Yahweh, with the God who is unchanging and who is covenantally faithful and reaches out to them in relationship. Yeah, I. Um, it's interesting. Um, it reminds me, it was such a revelation to me when I realized that the way modern biblical translators uh, translate the word Yahweh. And so just, again, hearkening back to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words is don't misuse the name of the Lord, is in in an attempt to not misuse the name Yahweh, uh, it's rarely included in Scripture. And instead, translators have that little... uh, systematic way of putting capitals L-O-R-D with the first letter being, they're all uppercase, but the O-R-D is smaller font size. So anytime you see that word, Lord, in all uppercase letters, think Yahweh. So in, because that really is powerful to me where God is using his own name saying, Yahweh did this, tell them Yahweh, this I am Yahweh, um, as a, because 
it's almost like love in our language where we use the word love to mean so many different degrees of love. Everything from I kind of like something to passionately I would do anything for this person. And here you get the word Lord included in scripture so many different ways. Basically, any person that's your boss might be called Lord or any authority figure might be called Lord. So it's almost like a, in some ways a disservice to not use the word Yahweh in some of this. But I understand it, it started as very much a way to be very serious and respectful and not misuse the name of God and be, you know, very honoring to that word, to that Ten Commandments of don't misuse my name. Uh, Rachel, uh, since you were talking about covenants, made me think of a question that I didn't prepare y'all for this question. This may take us a little off course, but so we'll just do this briefly. This is a little podcast exploration question. Did God have a covenant with Adam? I was literally thinking about that. (laughs) Um, I think he did. I think that it was this, I am with you, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you, I've given you everything, and enjoy and be with me. And then I think that that covenant is broken um, when Adam sins and doesn't obey God. And I think there's a new covenant from then. Um, it's basically like a revised, like some of the privileges are not removed from Adam. He doesn't get to be in the perfect presence of God, but God is still in relationship with him. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree. It's not your typical covenant language, but it's definitely the thought of look at everything. It was obvious to Adam because everything around him, God had just provided with the Israelites it may not have been intuitively obvious to say, who is this God? And God starts that covenant by saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Whereas God with Adam, it was probably intuitive that, look, I don't have to, I don't have to introduce myself to you as what I can provide for you. Everything you see and do, I have given you. And so what is your part of this? Well, your part is to take care of it. And there's one rule while you take care of it, don't eat this fruit. Um, yeah. Those are kind and, of the conditions of the covenant for Adam. Yes. You know, you've got a job and there's one thing, there's one prohibition in this covenant that if you break it, you have violated my agreement with you in order for you to stay here and for us to be in relationship. Yeah, I, I agree. And and part of why I wanted to ask that is just because just out of curiosity, but also because I do think I think it shows how covenantal language is so ingrained into the narrative of the Old Testament that that we we don't always see it or it's not always clear to us because the word isn't always used. But I do think it's there from the very beginning. And I think there are elements of covenant that would have been much clearer to people like Moses that that we sometimes miss. And so I think it's important to keep that covenantal language in mind as we think about the series, as we think about everything that goes on with them. And I think it's part of why I wanted to try to use the phrase 10 words instead of 10 commandments for this series uh, and I explained that a little bit in the sermon Sunday that I think it um, it's more literal to what God says in Exodus 20, that these are words that he spoke to them and over them. 
but at least for me, it helps kind of shift the way that I think about them, um, that these are a word that God is speaking to us and over, uh, over his people. Um, that just sounds different to me than commands. Commands is much more legalistic, where I think words can be based much more in covenantal language. Yeah. Yeah. We, you see that in Jeremiah when Jeremiah is talking about the new covenant. Uh, he literally says, they broke my covenant, even though I was a faithful husband to them. And so, again, that concept of a marriage vow and Israel, the bride of God, broke the covenant agreement. Again, it's not this transactional, hey, we had a deal and you broke your side of the deal. It's we, we, we were in a partnership. We were in a marriage. We were in a loving relationship and you were not faithful. Again, that's the whole story of Hosea and his adulterous wife, Gomer. You know, that whole thing where God <laughs> makes, <laughs> really makes Hosea have a miserable life, I think, by saying you are going to represent what I'm going through, which is every time your wife leaves you and you have to buy her back to get her back in relationship, that's what it's like between me and Israel because you keep breaking your covenant. This is not a business deal. This is much more personal. Well, I think this is a, you know, this is a, a topic that we've been talking about and the the three of us have been talking about as we've kind of been leading up to this series. But I think even this conversation today for me is a reminder of, of the benefit and the, um, the reasons it's good to just to talk about scripture and to dig, dig into things, because I think we've, we've unearthed some things even in this conversation that um, have been helpful for me and interesting for me. So thank you all for, for your wisdom and insight into all this uh, so I want to I want to spend the last few minutes kind of looking ahead, looking at, at what's to come, and and so just kind of broadly think about that for a few minutes as we as we begin to close out. What are you? Is there anything you're looking forward to? Is there kind of a concept or or a string that you're looking forward to kind of exploring as we go through these ten words, or is there one word slash command that you're most interested in kind of digging into? What are you what are you thinking? What thoughts do you have as we look ahead? I'm interested in the conversation that will come up uh, around Sabbath. And I think that our culture hates Sabbath. Um I think we we praise work and we also appreciate laziness, but we don't necessarily honor Sabbath or have a concept for what that looks like. Um I think I need more Sabbath, <laughs> and I think our people do too. So I'm I'm looking forward to that conversation and what kind of implications it might have for our lives. Yeah, interestingly, I uh, in my introductory class in the adult class, I did throw out a 2018 poll that was done where they looked at kind of what modern Americans thought about the Ten Commandments, and I'll share that with you at some time. But one of the things that they found revealing was when they put uh, the phrase, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, in a group of statements. And so then they listed other, what were called, that 
other statements that are part of the Ten Commandments. And then they put that, you know, the golden rule in there. And they said, which of these is not part of the Ten Commandments? The one that always got thrown out was to keep the Sabbath day holy. They didn't think that was part of the Ten Commandments, but they thought the golden rule was. And so it goes back to what you're saying, Rachel, is most people forget that that's actually part of the the 10 words that part of the Decalogue. Yeah. Well, and to even before we move away from the Sabbath, I think to even call back to a question I asked earlier about like, if, if you don't think these are something we should adhere to, which of them would you kind of protest to us following? That would probably be the one, right? We, we don't keep the Sabbath holy and we're not kind of under that rule or whatever anymore. And that's where I think it's, it's helpful to think about these conceptually because yeah, even if you don't think, I mean, none of us are keeping the Sabbath the way that Jewish people of this time would have kept it, uh, or of Jesus' time would have kept it. But I don't think any of us would say rest and time intentionally spent kind of with God and in, in, in kind of restful communal, um, you know, communion with God is a bad thing. Um, and so there's concepts even within that that I think are incredibly relevant for us even if we're not sort of legalistically keeping the Sabbath. And so I think that kind of, I guess, to clarify something that I had asked earlier um, would, would be why, yeah, this is a very relevant command for us, even if we are not quote-unquote keeping the Sabbath holy. We still need Sabbath, and, and we, we need probably to, to view it more holy than we do now, <laughs> at least the concept of it, yeah. Uh, okay, so yeah, go ahead, Terry. Yeah. Um, again, just as teasers, as you think, oh, well, these, the, the 10 words, the 10 commandments, they're pretty much black and white. It's easy to understand. We all agree. I think as you start to unpack them, again, just as you're thinking through in the weeks ahead, what each of these commandments may look like when we start to really get deep and dig into the weeds, even something, you know, as black and white as thou shall not kill, or if you could translate that, maybe thou shall not murder. Uh, what does that even mean? And to what degree do people accept that or adhere to that? You see Jesus in his Sermon on the Mountain digging, in that, digging into that to some extent to internalize that. But even if we just take it on its face value of don't take a human life, what does that mean in relationship to how did they interpret it versus how do I personally interpret it? And what does that mean as far as being a, a soldier, being a police officer, defending my family? Uh, what does that even mean? Um, and then I think about other things that seem completely black and white, like do not commit adultery. And yet, how was that? Why was that part of covenant language with God and with other people? Was that more about moral purity, or was it more about covenant fidelity? Again, and maybe it's both. Uh, but as we think through and start to unpack these various uh, 10 words, I think there's so many places we can go that can add richness to our understanding, not only of that, but help us really spiritually grow and say, you know, I haven't thought about this. I need to think about this because these were important parts of shaping that community and it's an important part of shaping our current community as well. And Jesus didn't throw them out either. <laughs> no. He said he came to fulfill them, not to abolish the law. Yeah, and you know, that's an entire discussion point 
Uh, and if you ever want to open a can of worms and go <laughs> yeah, down a rabbit trail, just, you That'll know, be for are, another conversation. <laughs> yeah. Are Christians obliged to follow these as law that's binding today? Or do you feel like these are just good foundational precepts that basically have been restated in other ways uh, by the teachings of Jesus or the teaching of the apostles? And that's why we follow them but it's because Jesus said it and the apostles said it, not because God said it. And so it gets to be this very uh, polarizing discussion in some ways, and it doesn't have to be. I think we can live in that tension of either way, whichever camp you fall into, we are all saying these are good things for us to follow and they are foundational. And Warren, I think you did a good job in your introductory marks in your sermon of uh, not necessarily going to that extreme of saying you have to make a decision, but just saying regardless, these are foundational precepts that we can all agree are good to follow, whether you believe they are binding law or whether you feel like even in a life of where we're under grace, this is what grace looks like when you, when you decide, what does it look like for me to have a path to holiness while I'm living under grace? Yeah, I think, and you know, we've talked a lot in other conversations recently about the importance of purposeful, uh, purposeful action and intentionality, um, and and I think we recognize that, and so we can still be people who are grace centered and focused and aware that my salvation is not because of anything I can or will do, but because of Jesus. Like all of that is good, and I think is is not kind of up in the air for discussion as far as I'm thinking about it. But, but we, can, we can hold that belief and still say, if I'm going to grow as a disciple, if I'm going to, um, to, to fully be who I am called to be, that's going to take some purposeful and intentional action on my part. That's going to take some spiritual discipline. That's going to take some of all this, you know, stuff. I've got to, I've got to be doing something. <laughs> and, and I think that's, to me, where I'm, I'm personally kind of looking forward to some of the seemingly kind of black and white commands at the, because, you know, you get towards the end of this list of 10, and there's the, the first few, there's a lot of words that go into the first few commands. And then you get to the end, and it's just very cut and dried, almost black and white. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Um, do not steal. And, and I think those can be on the surface almost like I said, the most cut and dried, black and white, don't steal. Okay, I'll do that. I won't steal. But if we think through like, so what is, if this is what I'm supposed to not do, what is the, what is the thing that this, this word calls me to do? If I'm not to steal, what would be kind of the positive restatement of that? What should I do? How am I to think about other people's property and stuff? How do I go about valuing other people's stuff? What does that look like in a modern context? What might that have to say for something like plagiarism or intellectual property that probably wasn't much of a thought for, for you know, Israelites coming out of slavery um, who aren't thinking about things like Facebook posts or is it stealing for me to take someone else's joke that they used on Twitter and use it as my own? Like, you know, you can really go down some rabbit holes um, with that one. And as you said, Terry, to a much greater extent to something with like, do not kill. And so what does that mean for that to honor that in my life on a day-to-day basis besides just not murdering someone? 
Um, and so all kinds of kind of conversations there that I think some of those we will explore in some of our different areas, but I think are interesting just as I think about them personally, what am I kind of interested in thinking about and digging into for me? I think those are the areas where I find myself kind of drawn to most in addition to kind of fleshing out what some of these first few commands look like for us in a modern context. Uh, One just final thought that really pulls together everything you both were saying is that as we think through this, really the focus though is still not to just discuss this with yourself in isolation. It's like, I'm going to come up with what it means to me by sorting through this, maybe reading some stuff on the internet, reading some commentaries, and that's that's going to be the way I view this. Uh, all of this was always meant to be, you know, deciphered in community, and that it, community helps shape our understanding of that. It, again, in a marriage vow, one party wouldn't just sit down saying, "Hey, I've come up with some new rules." Uh, they're they're Here great. Here are some things you need to work on. <laughs> yeah, these are great. I've come up with new rules for both of us. Uh, it would be done in community, and even in a family, where you're, when your children start getting older, uh, you know, the thing that is most formative is the things that you can kind of talk through in community, uh, and they keep keep you central in it. And again, having to, you know, wanting to make sure that that conversation is also a spiritual conversation going on as well. It's through, you know, everyone praying, everyone seeking discernment. So when you come together, I may say, well, this is how I view this in my life, but you may see it differently. And it's really helpful for me to know that Rachel sees that differently than I do or Warren, you see it differently. And that also gives grace in my life to say, you know what, I still feel like this is the way I need to respond to this, but there's plenty of grace in my life to say, Warren and Rachel, you don't have to respond the same way. That command for you does not mean the same thing for you as it has to mean for me. You know, whatever that is, uh, you know, again, do not, do not kill. That, that's probably one of the more concrete things where you can say, you're going to interpret that different than maybe I would. Uh, you know, my family background, my role in life, um, that may shape how I view that. And you um, may have a totally different view of that. And yet we all feel like we are being very responsive and serious and sincere in how we obey that word. I think that's a, that's a, good, a good thought for us to close on. So... Thank you, Terry and Rachel, for your your time today. And looking forward to more conversations as we go throughout this series. And uh, so, Rachel, you want to close us in prayer for today? Let's pray. Our good Father, we worship you and thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and the fact that you told your people how to worship you and what you wanted from them. Thank you that we still have those words up to this day and that you continue to speak to us. Form us into the community community that you would have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.